And that, and that to see that way forward, to see that, yes, this is given to you to participate in Christ, to see that and say, no, I'm too afraid. No, I better not. I've got commitments to my, my family's religion and so forth. Is itself demonic? To see the truth and do otherwise is a lie. It's a demonic lie. Hey, welcome everyone to the Orthodox Christian Podcast. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Deacon Gregory Weeb, who is also a doctor in the sense of having a doctorate degree. And for everyone watching or listening, Deacon Gregory, why don't you take a second to introduce yourself and tell everyone what you spend your time doing? Yes, what do I spend my time doing? Uh, so my name, uh, uh, as you say, is Deacon Gregory Weeb. Um, I live in Winnipeg with uh, a family of five. Um, which is to say, me, my wife, and three of our and three our three children, and um, I do have an, uh, a PhD in religious studies, um, and I work at a university. Though I'm not a professor, I'm not a uh, an, an instructor. I work in administration there. That's one of the things I do uh, in academic administration. I uh, I I joke with my family that I'd like someone to get me a shirt, a T-shirt that says "I'd rather be in church," because Usually that's true. So when I'm when I'm not there, uh, I'm I'm usually thinking about our our parish at uh, Saint Nicholas, up just north of Winnipeg in Narrow, Manitoba, and of course uh, you know family life has all of its busynesses in terms of uh, you know what what we do. My kids are 14. My eldest is uh, is uh, a young woman of the age of 14, and my son is 12, and I have a, a younger daughter who's seven. So you know swimming and you know seem to be gymnastics and soccer and all those things that's what we do so a professional taxi driver on the side yeah that's right i mean although credit where credit is due my wife does does a lot of that work um a lot of the uh, a lot of the driving around but you know there's plenty of stuff to do well as far as church goes you know uh with with the ordination to the diaconate this this summer that's fairly fresh uh, that was back in June, so uh, there's a fair amount of liturgical responsibilities, but otherwise I lead a Bible study um, for the few folks who are, are interested. Um, and um, I spent, before I was a deacon, I, I, I was the, the main choir director, so I was, I was principally involved with the, uh, the direction of music at the church, and, and, uh, and all that comes with that. Right, and you also host a podcast. And I also host a podcast. Thank you for keeping me on track. It's important for me that other people know my life better than me because it's hard for me to come up on the spot. Um, that's right. With uh, with my uh, my very dear friend, Dr. Daniel Opperwall, uh, who was uh, uh, who was the friend who introduced me to orthodoxy. So he'll come up again. But yes, we uh, we record a podcast when we can. Uh, once upon a time, it was um, bi-weekly. These days, it's more like monthly, called Men Among Demons. And um, it's a kind of thinking out loud podcast uh, in which we, we try to wrestle with topics that we think are of, of spiritual significance, not in some generic sense, but um, that, that, that seem to us to, to manifest something acute about uh, about the spiritual struggle, the, the, the struggle of, of uh, the struggle against um, spirit rather than flesh, as we heard in the epistle reading this last, 
this last uh, Sunday. So yes, so so dealing with topics, and then we and it's not rehearsed. It's not it's not pre uh, pre thought out. We just we just roll, and uh, because as friends for many years, we've we've had a very good time. And, a, and built a, a very strong friendship thinking out loud together. So that's what we do on that podcast. Wonderful. So uh, tell us a little bit about the religious uh, upbringing that you had, if you did have one, and uh, what mm-hmm. it kind of looked like in terms of just church attendance or lack thereof, as well as what it looked like at home, and then mm-hmm. bring us up to the place where orthodoxy um, appeared on the map for you. Mm-hmm. Feel free to keep me on uh, on time if if I go long. There's all sorts of little nooks and crannies that one could get into, of course. Yeah, I did have a religious upbringing. Um, I spent most of my uh, most of my upbringing years in Winnipeg, with a small stint in California, which is where my parents went to seminary. I grew up Mennonite brethren. Uh, for what it's worth, if your listeners aren't familiar, that's kind of so. Anabaptism is a fairly large umbrella of of uh, Protestant and especially radical reformation, uh, movements. And, um, and, uh, the, the Mennonite brethren are kind of one in the evangelical, more evangelical influenced wing of, of, of those movements. I grew up and it was a pretty pious family. We definitely regularly went to church, um, went to youth group for as long as I could stand it. Uh, and, and, you know, did our, uh, did our definitely did our part and and um well see dad was dad was centrally involved in uh in the in the conference in the canadian conference of mennonite brethren churches uh for 10 years or so he was the director of christian education and then and then after that for i can't remember what it was 10 or 15 years he was the executive director so so really the 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 top the top ranked whatever administrator pastor figure of of the canadian conference of those churches um so it was a significant role and put us definitely right in the in the middle of some things um yeah so so yep definitely grew up going to church um yeah what remind me of uh, what what else you want me to talk about here so just kind of bring us from that point um just do a, a brief an abridged spiritual autobiography as it were from being raised in the Mennonite Brethren Church to the place where you actually encounter orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, a couple of the key shifts are, um, I, I was instinctively pious. I'm the youngest of three children myself. Uh, I was fairly instinctively pious. I think my older brother and sister had, had more natural instincts towards pushing, pushing boundaries and rebellion and, and so forth. Uh, um, you know, which I say with their judgment. Um, uh, like for whatever reason, my inclination was to be a good boy. And so, um, you know, I wanted to go to church in, in the, at least in the sense of, you know, of making, making sure mom and dad were happy. Uh, there were, there were moments as I got into, um, late, late teen years and into, into university, I was finally baptized. I mean, as an Anabaptist, um, um, what do you call it? Denomination as an Anabaptist denomination. It's very typical for, for people to get baptized in their teens and and twenties or whenever they, whenever it is they happen to join the church. Of course they don't practice child baptism. That's kind of the, the whole deal. And, uh, and so I wasn't baptized in my teens. I was sort of waiting for kind of a moment uh, where things are coming together. And, and so that happened in my, in my university years. And, um, 
so I really did want to make my faith my own. And that has, that had always stayed with me. And one of the challenges to that was, uh, um, in my in my post secondary education, I went from music and and but increasingly got interested in theology or what the Mennonites call theology. And I learned not from Mennonite brethren, but from what you know what we called then General Conference Mennonites or or now Mennonite Church Canada folks about peace theology. And I thought that was very engaging, and it started to make me think that my more evangelical MBs were lacking a bit of substance. Um, but anyways, I, you know, I was committed to the faith and got baptized. And then uh, shortly after that, towards the end of my undergrad uh, career, uh, I, I met Amanda, who is now my wife, and we got married. And she decided that um, when we got married, rightly, she she didn't found the idea distasteful of, of coming to sort of my church and being Greg's wife. And that's like, we need to establish our own kind of church uh, uh, path together. And, and so, uh, so we did, and we wound up going to a, a local church. That's a bit of a, a bit of a, something of a phenomenon in Winnipeg, an Anglican church, um, St. Marcus Anglican and the rector there was, uh, educated, which is, un, which, which, uh, in MB circles would have been very unusual, right? It didn't, it was, it's kind of an anti, like evangelicalism is, a, is no small element of anti-intellectualism, which isn't, is a kind of problem as someone who is who is interested in studying theological matters and uh, but the but the rector at saint Margaret's had a phd had a phd from oxford uh was very bright uh his sermons were very um very engaging right they they were smart uh and and i one could learn a ton from them and um and i had a bit of a problem in the sense that I felt like I, I was supposed to have a kind of loyalty to the Mennonite, uh, Mennonite brethren faith to the Mennonites, to the church I grew up in. And, uh, and David, this, though, the rector's name is, um, I had a chat with him. I laid this out. Like I feel, I really, am really liking this church, but I feel bad essentially about leaving the Mennonite brethren fold. And he effectively just gave me permission. I mean, he—I think he basically, literally said, "Don't worry about it." And there was there was a kind of absolution there that um, I will never forget, and that's always a part of this this story when I tell it. And uh, it basically just just gave me permission to try something different, and uh, and it was kind of the beginning of the end because um, you know he was engaging, but the what what I found in the Anglican Church was a uh, liturgical participation in, 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 a, in a traditional liturgy um, gave me something to grab on to for my my desire for piety, my desire for religiosity, my desire to to be dutiful dutiful and responsible towards this call that God has for me and for for everyone as humans um, to love him, to worship him, to set him above, above all all things this these are things that i sort of hadn't grown up with a sense about and then was learning more and more about and then here it's like well if you have, have liturgical participation you can actually feel like you're doing something about that love and actually worshiping um that was just one year it was one short year and then i went off to grad school and um and and another key aspect of that journey was um, 
eventually uh, learning about the church fathers and I, and I wound up studying Augustine, St. Augustine of Hippo in, in, in my master's and, and then PhD. And I wound up uh, writing on his demonology, his concept of fallen angels uh, across, across a lot of theological work. But, you know, part of that is writing comprehensive exams as a, as a PhD student in about your second year, you write a couple of exams at different universities do it in different ways. Um, but for us, you had to write a couple of exams and it's basically like, you need to know if you're going to be a PhD, you need to know the field. You pick a couple of fields that you sort of, you know, agree with your supervisor that these are the fields that you need to know. And one of them was the church fathers was patristics. And so I started to read, I, so I had been reading Augustine, uh, who was, you know, this, er, this early church, you know, very engaging, very fascinating figure. Uh, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And then, uh, and then because of the comprehensive exams, I was required to read a bunch of basically early church theology up to uh, Nicaea and the Council of uh, 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 Chalcedon. And so learned that Augustine isn't just a lone voice, but that there's this whole, there's this whole tradition of, of writing in the early, in the early church that is brilliant it's very very intelligent right I, I found none of that kind of intelligence anywhere um anywhere in the, in, the, in my church experience except accepted that anglican church that there were like that people that the doctrines and the things that the early church believed and held and taught were 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 believed and held and taught for reasons for defensible reasons that that night that there's a structure to the Nicene Creed that it has making arguments about how to read scripture and how what's really going on there that that there was just so much more going on than I had than I had realized and that there's a kind of fundamental unity everyone had had different voices and had different yeah, different agendas that they need right different things that they needed to do different different work that they needed to to, to get done but the kind of fundamental unity to the story here was just um amazing and so effectively like you know this is like this is the early church as an evangelical you want to recover the early church well here it is you know this robust theological uh, vision of the early church and then i met my friend dan uh you know somewhere in there that you know it, it's it became clear that he's orthodox we had conversations and i don't know how many times he told me you know are you sure you're not orthodox you know uh I'd never been to a church. So he invited me to a church and uh, we had been bouncing around Mennonite, Mennonite brethren churches and so forth. Never, you know, whatever there's details there, but never mind. He invited us to church and I first went to an Orthodox church on triumphal entry 2011, just before my son was born. And, um, and I was already thinking like, Oh man, I'm going to have to come back here. And like, there's, it's just radiating with significance. It's clear how like, it's just radiating with significance. Everything is in place for, for reasons it's thought through there's tradition. There's like, it's, you know, and, uh, and the church we were going to very shortly after that really suffered a massive implosion. The, the, the pastor was unceremoniously um dismissed 
and Amanda and I had to find a church to go to. And we tried out um, this church, All Saints of North America in Hamilton, uh, for for a couple of months uh, together. And very quickly, it was like, oh, this is the thing. This is This is the early church I had been looking for. This is the church that manifests everything that I had been learning in the church fathers on my own, in my office as a graduate student. Like all of a sudden it's like, you know, you don't have to build a bridge back to the first century anymore. There, you know, or you build that bridge back and you find that there are all people already there, right? There are people already living in a church that is, that is connected organically with that, with that, 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 uh, that first century church, that early church. And so that, yeah, so that brought me to the, that brought me to the doorstep at which I was, I was, uh, really starting to think, um, seriously about orthodoxy. Yeah. That, in fact, the, the clincher, the real key, the real key shift to, to thinking about it seriously probably came after my first Pascha, which would have been the following year in 20, uh, in 2012 and seeing the big show for the first time and seeing how all the lit the liturgies that I had been to all are kind of summed up in there. And that, that like, they're all just kind of a manifestation of this one central liturgy. And I came back, I'm like, I don't, I don't know what, I don't know how I could possibly bring this back to the Mennonite brethren. I don't know how could like, how can I keep, how can I keep tapped into this? And Dan's like, well, you could just become Orthodox, right? And that's the moment, you know, that's one of those key moments that it's like, kind of like David, David Whitcomb, my, that, the, the rector at St. Mark's, kind of like him just saying the thing that just gives you permission to start thinking about something in a different way. Uh, very much like that, actually. All of a sudden, uh, you know, my, my friend Dan give, gave me permission to start thinking in a different way. So... Mm. So Sorry. I'm going to summarize and you let me know if it's accurate, but it sounds like raised Mennonite brethren, pretty pious, pretty committed to Mennonite brethren churches, um, started going to this Anglican parish and found a lot of life there. We're given permission to continue with that. Um, then relocated to Hamilton That's for right. your master's and your grad studies. And you were bouncing around to different Mennonite brethren churches for the most part. Um, but having conversations with Dan Opperwall, Dr. Yeah. Opperwall, but also reading the Church Fathers because you were studying uh, St. Augustine's demonology. And so these things um, sort of met at the Orthodox Church and you really found it engaging and, and can look back. Is that an accurate summary? Yeah, that's right. It, it, it very clearly manifested itself uh, as, as the thing I was looking for. Right. But I didn't even know I was looking for. And yeah. in terms of um, going to that Anglican church initially, was there a shift that occurred for yourself in terms of um, I wish I had a better word for this, but in terms of like sacramentality, because with the Mennonite Brethren Church, they obviously don't believe that the body and blood of Christ are present in the Eucharist or in communion. It is more of like a cognitive ceremony where you're remembering something that happened, but you're not necessarily believing that as you participate in these things, you're united with what is divine and immortal and, and life-giving. But I know that in certain Anglican churches, if it's more of like a high, high Anglican liturgy, at least, 
they will believe that it is the body and blood of Christ that is present there. And they'll have other aspects that are sacramental. Um, was that a, a shift that had to occur within you? Yeah, but it, but not, not at any per, uh, perceptible level. Um, it was the liturgy at, at St. Marcus was, was, is fairly formal. Uh, David described it as an evangelical Anglican church. And he meant that quite specifically in the sense that um, we, that we do what's on the page so that anybody can walk in and follow along. And it's not just a bunch of insider, insider baseball moves that, that are inscrutable to, to outsiders. Right. So it's like, it was a place that was, that was built and, and is beautiful. The music was, there was conscious attempt to make it beautiful, to make it formal, to make it feel like, like you're doing something that matters. And so I, you know, I couldn't tell you how highly sacramental the folks there are in terms of their perceptions about whether what's in that chalice is truly the, the, the blood of Christ and what that, what that wafer is that you get is truly the body of Christ. Couldn't tell you what they believed. It's a good question actually, but, but, but yes, the, the, there was a kind of importance of sacramentality to it to the extent that everyone was there doing what they were doing making it as beautiful as possible and treating it as though it mattered or that it mattered fundamentally. And that was, that was very much the kind of thing. And I, I don't think that you can get that without some, some relatively high sense of sacramentality, right? That the words we're saying actually mean something. That's what sacramentality is. Right. Um, that the things that the, the the processions and the and the liturgical actions that we do that the, when you kneel for confession you kneel for confession, and that that actually means something. It means it means being penitent, and you're supposed to be penitent, right? So all of that really ignited my sense for like, yes, I'm I'm supposed to be penitent. Give me language. Give me something to do. You know, I'm supposed to worship. God, give me language. I had no language, right? Everything as you, as you can imagine or have experience with yourself, perhaps, you know, in, in the more evangelical world is, is very like, is both emotive and expressive, right? It's about the words that you come up with in prayer and wind up being, well, anyways. Um, but for me, it's like, just teach me how to pray. Teach me how to pray. And one of the most, one of the most fundamental things about becoming orthodox in those early years is like i don't know how to pray right i always feel weird and awkward praying in in the ways i was taught as as a mennonite brethren and the priest there could just give me a book it was like here try this <laughs> and it's like oh, just a bunch of traditional 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 prayers uh ones that you can find in just about any orthodox prayer book that would be familiar right it starts with the trisagon prayer blah 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 you know prayers for the end of day um, and it's like, these are beautiful words and they shape how you think and they give you, it's like, I have this longing to, to pray that the night might go well. And here's some, some words for it. Um, and it's a total, it's a totally different approach. Mm -hmm. So that, mm -hmm. so the seed was planted, right? The seed is planted in, in Anglicanism. And if I had never found out about orthodoxy, you know, who knows where we would be, would be now, but, um, but I did, and I'm. I thank God for it. 
Yes, yes. And you mentioned studying um, St. Augustine on demonology, which I imagine mm -hmm. you can talk about for a while, seeing you wrote a, a thesis on it. But can you um, possibly give us a bit of a synopsis in terms of how he views demons and how you would see that connected to the the present world? Because when one reads the Gospels, for instance, Christ is going around and there are these demon possessed people and he's yeah. casting out the demons and when the apostles go out they encounter similar phenomenon and we don't necessarily um identify what we encounter as demons today um and then there's sort of a, a mystery at least in terms of scripture and and the tradition in terms of how these things come to be in the first place i mean you've got sort of vague passages in in genesis but if you could give us sort of a, a overview of that, I think it'd be really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the things that you find when you read around a bit in early Christian writings on demons is that the gospel accounts of Christ's encounters with demons um, are, are, are pretty unlike the rest of early Christian demonology. And that that had that had been a mystery to me for a long time although i've started i've started to get a little more clarity on on why on why that might be and i think it frankly has to do with um what happens the na the nature of that in initial encounter with the holy and of course in this case with with um uh, you know god himself incarnate uh um what you find, what you find a lot in in early Christian demon uh, early Christian demonology, you there are kind of two two basic um, two basic uh, patterns. One one uh, one which is kind of uh, urban urban episcopal uh, demonology, like you'd find in Augustine or the other great uh, bishops who have large congregations in cities, and the kinds of demonologies you'll find uh, among monks. So. All of that I kind of found out later, and I just focused on uh, I just focused on Augustine, and um, and part of the reason was because it seemed it's sort so, so sort of evidently political. I thought it was was really politically engaging. So demons are kind of are kind of political figures. Um, the the reality is that uh, the gods of the nations are demons that's that the the book the dissertation that became a book is really about that and it still has taken me almost until now to realize that that needs to be said the other way around demons are really nothing other than the gods of the nations and they kind of never have been anything else um that probably i think still needs to be said a little more a little more forcefully in in scholarship but when you're talking about demons you're talking about the gods the nations worship the, the the gods the principles the you know national gods the gods the of hearth and home the civic gods the genius of the emperor they write all the different things that you sacrifice to um you know that you that you adhere to religiously uh which you know these gods these deities these uh, spiritual beings that receive sacrifice and receive worship and show up in your dreams and show up in the entrails of birds 
and show up in, you know, a weird phenomena that you have to figure out earthquakes and so forth, right? All the, all the phenomena of, of, of what we call paganism, uh, that, that, that do all those things that take worship, but don't direct you to the one true God, right? That's what a demon is. It's something that, it's something that the nations worship, um, in order, as though they need to, in order that life might go well with them, right? Oh, I want to, I want to find a good home, or I want to find a good wife, or I want this woman to marry me, or I want to make sure I have kids. Well, better make a sacrifice to so and so. Better make a sacrifice to so and so. I better pledge a pledge a uh, you know vote of offering to so and so. Blah, right? All this kind of pagan phenomena, like all. So then, what are we talking about? Like we're talking about festivals and games and sacrificial. Uh, rites and all these kinds of things are all theological phenomena in the ancient pagan world. That's just culture. That's that's just the stuff that makes up Roman culture. What we think of as Roman culture, what we think of as Greek culture, what we think of as Babylonian culture, right? All of that stuff is, you know, all intertwined with the gods that all these, you know, imperial peoples um think that they have to serve in order that things might go well with the empire, that things go, might go well with their nation or whatever. Right. And so that when, when, when Augustine says, when the church fathers say the gods of the nations are demons, they're false. They're calling for your worship when you should be, when you should only be worshiping the one true God. That's, that's the significance. And so, and so the, the, the dissertation in the book is just like, I talk, you know, I talk about angels and what angels are and the fall of the angels uh, and the kinds of bodies demons have and how they manifest themselves and the different kind of phenomena in which they manifest themselves, demonic phenomena. But really, uh, so, you know, then, then it culminates in like really the, the, the principal phenomena of uh, the principal way that demons show up and manifest themselves to humanity is in pagan religious culture that is suffused through everything in those days and that the and that the only freedom from from the lordship this false lordship of demons which takes worship that does not belong to it the only freedom is found in christ the only freedom is found in christ's body the only way the, the way to access christ and his freedom is in his body in the church and so what you have are these two rival cities, these two rival bodies, the devil in his body and Christ in his body, right? And the devil in his body are all the nations of the world worshiping the wrong, the wrong spirits for the wrong purposes, using, using the wrong means, right? All of this. And, and, and Christ in his body are the, are the ones who are offering the true sacrifice, right? The Hebrews in the time of Israel and, and, Christians in the time of the church after the incarnation, um, you know, that that's what it's, that's what it's really all about. That's what it's really all about. So when you get to the punchline for me as an author, working my way sort of intellectually and spiritually through all of this, you get to the punchline that like, you can only be free truly to worship God. If you become a part of his body sacramentally that's where the sacramental theology came in for me to realize like how god has set this up for us to participate in christ 
through the sacraments. And this is all happening at the same time that Dan's, you know, introducing me to the Orthodox Church. Like, like stars are lining up. And that, and that to see that way forward, to see that, yes, this is given to you to participate in Christ, to see that and say, no, I'm too afraid. No, I better not. I've got commitments to my, my family's religion and so forth. Is it self-demonic? To see the truth and do otherwise is a lie. It's a demonic lie, right? Once you see that, once you have your eyes opened, like you have, you have to go. And so that's what I, that's, that was, that's what I found. That's where I okay. was. So I've, I've got three follow-up questions. Yeah. Um, I've been reading St. Mark's gospel a lot. And um, so there's three things related to demonology that I would want to run by you. So first of all, yep. it seems inherent in evil's nature that it has a scattering effect or a multiplicity effect in the sense yep. that when, cause God is one, when you depart from the one, there's multiplication in a negative sense, like a scattering, like chaff into the wind. And so you see this biblically in the sense that when Adam and Eve stray from God, they are exiled from the garden. Then when Israel goes into the promised land, there is division among the tribes initially in the book like judges. And they start infighting um, because there's no king in the land because there's they no king worship in the land. these false gods. Yep. Yeah. And then uh, the extension of that is the uh, exile into Babylon and yes. that these things are very closely tied to worshiping the false gods, which again are multiple. So it's like there's yep. all these different gods rather than one unifying principle that's bringing everyone together. Yep. Um, and then you've got in the new Testament in say like St. Mark's gospel legion, who is many mm -hmm. in one. And so mm -hmm. there's like the scattering that's going on there. So mm -hmm. um, that's, that's one thing that one run by you. And, if, if we can hold that in mind and I'll just run another two things okay. by you. Um, one is vision and proper vision and orientation towards God. And so it seems like, again, in St. Mark's gospel, but I think throughout scripture that proper vision is when you have the heavenly things at the top and the earthly things below. And these things are not opposed to each other, but there's a certain priority that's given to them. And the heavenly things would be generally hidden things like um, God is there, but mm -hmm. you would have other things like the human heart or the future or the nature of suffering or the meaning of parables or the meaning of dreams. Like these are hidden mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. that are superior. And then you've got the earthly things that are not bad in terms of like glory and honor and fame and wealth and whatever else. But in general, it seems like when someone properly sees the world, they are willing to sacrifice the earthly things or use them as a ladder mm -hmm. to the mm -hmm. heavenly things, something like mm -hmm. this. Yep. Um, then you've kind of got this middle state of blindness where people are just focused on the earthly things. Um, mm -hmm. And then it seems you've got this other stage, which is wickedness, which is an inversion of the proper order where now the earthly things become the dominant focus and the heavenly things are used as a means to the earthly things. And so for an example of this, you'd have Judas selling Christ. So he's getting financial reward for this heavenly, he's sacrificing the heavenly thing for, for an earthly end. Um, and I think per perhaps with demon possession, it's something like that as well, where, or even just like the nature of fallen angels, where they are giving up what is heavenly 
for the earthly thing. Like they're coming to earth to, to rule and they're forfeiting what right. should be prioritized. If, if that, if that holds. Um, right. So, okay. And if I can just throw one more thing in there, just to make it really complicated. <laughs> we'll, see okay. we'll see, we'll see what everyone happens. abreast. Um, so the, the last thing is just uh, like true and false Christs. And so uh -huh. like Christ in um, his like apocalyptic sayings in Mark 13, uh, we'll talk about these false Christs that will arise. And you immediately see that um, manifested in Christ's trial because there is Jesus Barabbas. So it's Jesus, son of the father, who's yeah. a murderer on in prison for insurrection. And he's released to the crowd rather than Christ, who is the true son of the father. And it seems like in scripture, again, you do have this constant theme of like the true way and the false way. There's obviously like the way to life and the way to death, but in terms yep. of the actual narrative, um, the lineage is really interesting in Genesis to me because from Cain and from Seth, there's people that have very, very similar names. And so just an example of this, you have Lamech who says, if I am like struck, I will kill a man and I will be avenged seven times 70. And then you have Lamech who is the father of Noah. And so you have these right. like parallel realities. Um, you also have like the giants that David is slain and you have David's mighty men, which are also slain the giants. And so right. there's this seemingly, uh, competitive nature between those two things. And then uh -huh. that kind of gets carried into Christ and his disciples versus the demons. Cause like the, the demoniac has certain things, there's certain elements of him or Jesus um, Barabbas that are like kind of similar to Christ. They're like this counterfeit uh, Christ. So if I'm going to summarize right. these, I would say, can you just talk about demonology in terms of like the scattering nature of it? Um, the, the inversion of the proper vision of life and um, this like lookalike or counterfeit uh, nature of it. Yeah. Let's see what we can do. Okay. Yeah. I mean, to answer that first question, yes, you can talk about, you can talk about demons in terms of this, in terms of the scattering. Augustine does it quite explicitly and, and, and he's not alone. It's, uh, you know, it's one of these, it's one of these early, early tropes, um, that, that, um, the sort of polytheism of Imperial Rome is a kind of polyarchy, right? The rule of the many, which is kind of a mob and, and Augustine makes quite a bit of hay with, with all the, the traditional mythology in which all the gods are very much like when we're talking about the gods of the nations being demons, we're talking about the, the, the gods that, you know, and many of course that you don't that have, that have been, that have passed out of, out of sort of popular knowledge, but we're talking about Zeus and Athena and, and, um, and so forth, or Jupiter and Hera and Pecunia and money, you know, money and, and, and all these, um, in the in their very stories like just look at just look at the stories that there are about them they're fighting they're they're rivals they make alliances and they break alliances and they stab each other in the back and and it's like right that that's correct that's that's what we're talking about that's what we're talking about that these that these gods are not you know truly divine 
they're not truly the sons of God that, you know, part of, part of the divine council. They're these, they're these lesser warring, uh, beings who have, who have, you know, lost their way through pride. And so he will, he will talk, you know, like I say, he'll make, he makes quite a bit of hay on, uh, in terms of, of, of the intrinsic infighting and, um, essentially the problem of diversity, um, which, which I say advisedly, and that's one, and it's one of the things that is key for us understanding, uh, our, you know, the current moment of obsession with diversity, right? You forget that you for like the people I interact with on a daily basis don't, don't realize, don't fully appreciate the, 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 you know, sort of the theological problem diversity can have there's of course other senses of diversity like you and i are are different people and we're not meant to be the same we're not meant to do the same things uh so so there's there's plenty of room for sort of philosophical theological um uh nuance and, and depth but you cannot you cannot just say something like uh, diversity is our strength as our you know prime minister did you know some time ago or you know you can't just say that naively diversity can very much be a problem it can be a literally demonic problem because it because what what i like to say uh, to, uh is is something like diversity isn't good or bad or 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 strength it it's just a given right the question is what unifies you right that's the question there's plenty of diversity you can spend all the time you know in your entire life thinking about the ways in which your you you your own self is diverse you could spend your entire life dividing yourself down into all your constitutive cells there's so much diversity in, in in a in a human body what unifies you that's the question what holds you together what keeps you together right and that ultimately is christ right that keeps you together that keeps your mind and your and your soul and your and your body together working as a unit and that's something that that the demons and pagan culture cannot fundamentally do right it cannot hang together it will always it will always um disintegrate right it will always fall towards incoherence which is why you know i feel you know somewhat sad about the current time that we're living in because it's like things are falling apart and it's and it's all it's all connected as to why it's falling apart is that enough is that what you're is that what yeah, you're yeah. yeah that's good for the scattering so like can you talk a little bit about that vision and like if you think that that's a helpful way to characterize it in terms of um like you, you do have sort of the heavenly goods and the earthly goods and you use the earth as a means to god mm -hmm. and the earth yeah, isn't yeah. bad it's just not primary and that evil it seems is an, an inversion of that proper yeah. word. or maybe yeah, you cast right. it differently yeah so a couple a couple of thoughts the first thing right the first thing you make me think of is is the angels angels for if in augustine's thought um and also in the book of jubilees actually angels are created on the first day the spirits are created on the first day and from there from there the subsequent days there are in a sense assigned assigned powers and and dominions and domains over the various aspects of creation um but the cycle the cycle of genesis the cycle of of the days of creation for augustine are the angels are integrally 
we could spend a whole podcast on this. It's so beautiful um, that it, the way the creation of the angels in, is is integral, literally, to what's happening in Genesis. I bring it up only because in in that cycle, the way he the way he makes it clear is that like the angels are, you know you're sort of going through the structure of all creation as it were, as angels know it, right? You're given what's happening in Genesis is in, is, is that you're given an angelic view of creation, something like that, how creation is, is structured and ordered according to angels who know it best. How do they know it best? Not the, right. The paradox is that you, we think, especially in a, in a, sci a scientific, you know, modern scientific imagination, we think that you can know creation, things, animals, plants, rocks, whatever, who cares, by, 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 by giving all your attention to the things themselves, right? You bracket out all spiritual reality and causes, and you, you focus all attention on that. And what and what the reality is that the angels know these things better than any human because they know them in God. They see to the extent that they can see in God because they love God, right? They're given they're they're these intellectual creatures, these spiritual creatures who are who are created to love and know God. And in that love and knowledge of God, they know they know all of what God has created because what, what better, what better place to know um, all of what, all of what is created than, than in the very one who designed and created it. Right. But the only way that you can know, and of course it's limited, right? Like it's, there's no, there are no claims here that, that angels have a kind of unlimited knowledge of what God knows or that, angels know as god knows or something like that right none of that but the point is that they know what they're able to know to the extent that as as created beings they can know it because they love and know god that that the knowledge of earth is only fully like you can only truly know earth to the extent that you have your mind in heaven right and because Christ, the world of the forms is that what it's mapping onto to a certain degree yeah, like that's, because uh, that's a that's the connection. Like you, yeah, you know, yeah. Because you know, just to keep people abreast, like if you're encountering rocks, for instance, like you encounter multiple rocks, and then you make an abstraction about the general principle of rock or like whatever specific rock you're mm -hmm. studying, and that general principle isn't something you can go out and find in the created world. It's an abstraction that you are discovering. You could say mm -hmm. if you believe in the forms. Um, and that this is something that's immaterial, but nevertheless real. And therefore it would be in the realm of the angels, so to speak. Um, it's sort of this hidden heavenly reality, but I don't know if that's how he lays it out. Something like that, but it's, but, but it's more like, the thing is when you, when, when we talk about in terms of forms and using this platonic language, it all seems kind of static. Like the point is to know about things, right? Okay, that's part of it, but that's incomplete. Angelic knowledge isn't isn't just like abstract knowledge about things. It's knowing. It's it's more like getting it, right? 
angels get it. They don't, they don't just know all, you know, know the intrinsic properties of minerals that they need to know. They like, they get what's going on, which means that they know and can participate in what, what needs to happen when they see in God, you know, what God wants them to see in terms of, um, now it's time for this fish to swallow this man. How's that going to happen? The great fish does not have his own, uh, uh, does not have his own intellect. It doesn't, it doesn't see, you know, doesn't, is not a prophet, right? The fish that swallows Jonah is not a prophet. So what prompts this to happen, right? What prompts Aaron's staff to bud, right? How does this happen? And Augustine's conception is that this happens through the ministry of the angels and they can do this because they know the properties of things and because they know them better, you know, best of all, best, best of, you know, that's possible in, in God and knowing them in God, they also see what the point of things is and how to direct things. So he envisions them like, so it's not just like, you know, knowing the forms, it's, it's being farmers. He talks about angels as farmers who, who understand the earth that they're working with, who understand the seeds that they're working with and understand how weather works and can read the signs and know what, and know what needs to be done when they know that, you know, when things are getting a little dry, when things are a little too dry and needs irrigation or when things are right, when, when, uh, you just need to leave it be and walk away. And when you need to get in there and pull some weeds, right? Like farmers, like there is this sense of not just the material properties of everything you're working with, but like how everything works together, right? That's the kind of, that's the kind of vision. And that, and, and so, and so um, the, the flip side then is, right? As you say, that, 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 hyper focus on the earth for its own sake apart from heaven actually robs you of a sense of appropriateness robs you of a sense of fittingness robs you of that sense of what needs to happen when right it's like going in by brute force and fertilizing and irrigating regardless of whatever else is happening uh, so that you get a good yield in the short term but destroy your farm in the long term or something like that right? It's, it's, it's the difference between knowledge or science and wisdom, right? It very much is the difference between science and wisdom because science is all about brute forcing. It's all about knowing things and their properties for their own sake, as though they're just things. And then we do, when we can do whatever we want with them, whether or not we should, right? The great line from Jurassic Park that we were so preoccupied by whether or not we could no one ever stopped to think, but whether or not we should, that describes everything, right? Everything of this modern moment. It's entirely lacking in wisdom. But so, so in terms of the, in terms of the vision, I think, I think that you're exactly right. And, and the only, the final thing that I would say is that you're kind of like, you're kind of toying around with this notion of blindness as being an intermediate, right? Of, of blindness of not, of, uh, you know, there's there's the proper orientation of of knowing earth in terms of heaven, right? As a thing that needs to be used to refer to heaven, mm-hmm. and then and then there's there's sort of dwelling in in earth and leaning into earth for its own sake, which is quite which is demonic in the final calculus. And the the blindness, there is no true neutrality, right? 
Hmm. Like what, you know, which isn't to say that there aren't degrees of wickedness. I think that it's very evident that there are, but the blindness, what seems neutral is just a veil. It's just a veil over your, over your deepest desires, over your deepest orientation that are a mystery to you. And your blindness makes it, make, can make it difficult even for those trying to attain to wisdom to figure out, is this person just stumbling through? Do the, is there a part of them that gets it? That, but, right? It's like, um, you know, the truth will out in the end. In the end, the truth will out. And, and, and there is no, there are only sheeps and goats. There's only right hand and left hand. Uh, there is no, there is no neutral middle uh, at the judgment seat of Christ. There are all sorts of people in the murky middle where you don't, it's hard to tell what, what trajectory you're on. Right. And it yeah. requires honesty the and reflection to, to draw that out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The reason that category and it's kind of a loose categorization at this point, so but good. Um, it seems interesting in yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But uh, in Mark's gospel, again, just uh, keep on bringing up this one thing. But it seems like there are people that are willing to cooperate with Christ in terms of they have faith and they're willing to act in a certain way in response to Christ or towards Christ. However, they do not know who Christ is. And it's actually only at the crucifixion when the Gentile says, truly, this was the son of God that someone recognizes in the gospel, aside from the demons who have this sort of fractured knowledge that, well, he's Christ, but they're not in obedience to him. But in terms of humans, um, there's plenty of people that have faith and are willing to cooperate with Christ, but they don't actually recognize the fullness of who he is. And so there seems to be this sense that they are blind. And even uh, Peter, who's sort of the greatest uh, of the yeah. disciples, is following him, but has no clue about his own self and says, well, I'm never going to de deny you and then denies him uh, subsequently. So it seems right. like there is some sort of some kind of blindness that is different than, than the wickedness of say the demons or some of the Jewish leaders at the end who actually mm -hmm. offer Christ as a sacrifice that essentially defiles Jerusalem. But um, well, and in a, in a certain sense where we, we all have some measure of that blindness, having to, mm -hmm. having to walk by faith, seeing in a mirror darkly. Yeah. Right. And, and, the, the question is very much like you don't get to have it all sorted out nice and neatly and systematically and then choose, hmm, I choose this one or this one. That's not how it works for any of us. We all have to come in this state of, of blindness and, and grow up and find your way forward. And, and, and part of what makes us who we are is exactly what, what we did what we decide to do and, and how we decide to proceed in these moments where it's not clear. And what's what 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 you know what Augustine will make clear is that whether you go to the one path or the or or the other, and we and and maybe that's your, your third your your third thing is kind of a, a variation on these two ways. Whichever way you go, the way of light or the way of dark, you're proceeding by faith. You're proceeding by some kind of faith, right? Faith that going down this will usually the the easiest way to think about it is that that doing this or going down this path will ultimately lead to my happiness. I was like, well, okay, well, are you going to go down this path or this path? Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Well, and can you, um, just to jump to that last one, like yeah, sure. in terms of like true and false Christs 
or like the Antichrist, like that's a, a theme with demons or something that comes up in the book of Revelation and other places. Does St. Augustine talk about that? Or do you have thoughts on that in terms of how demons he are does, this, like, counterfeit? Yeah, he does. I didn't, I didn't do a lot with the theme of, of Antichrist that didn't seem to, to come up um, super frequently when he does talk about demons. Um, but it is a related, a related concept. Um, um, but, but certainly one of the ways he does talk about demons is in terms of like, I would have, I would have thought going into the project that, that your basic opposition is between demons and angels, demons versus angels. Maybe it's the, the one on each shoulder, right? Yeah, um, Shepherd of Hermes. Yes. Right. And, uh, um, uh, but this—that's not how he talks about it at all. What what it winds up being is is demons versus Christ, demons versus Christ. Occasionally, he'll kind of sum sum up demons in terms of the devil, you know, their leader. But it's um, so it's this kind of weird, you know, this weird asymmetry to it. But certainly, the you know the um, the reason for that is because demons put themselves in the way of christ one of the ways you know it's a little hard for us to grasp the how, how to how to make practical this demonological language in our day and age because we've for so long given up the explicit worship of gods and we don't we don't talk you know make sacrifices in the same way that we used to so we're a little unsure of what to do with the idioms although i think i think the patterns are all still there which is why you know, that's the nature of Dan's and my podcast. The patterns are still there. Um, uh, but what a demon is, is whatever superimposes itself um, in an attempt to, to block you from accessing Christ. That's what it is. So it is, so the, the demon itself, you could say, you could talk about very much as a kind of anti-Christian figure, right? Every every demon is, is a kind of antichrist, or the pattern of the antichrist, at, you know, at lower levels is is present in all these because they would all, uh, because all of these gods, all these things that that call for our our service and our worship and our attention, our love, right? That we would love them more instead of Christ. That we would love ourselves more than Christ. That we would love wealth more than christ or you know the the ascendancy of our nation more than christ or you know whatever is greed or you know whatever yeah yeah does that map onto like in in proverbs it talks about wisdom like the true way of wisdom and then this adulterous it like personifies wisdom and it personifies uh -huh. folly and so wisdom is the woman who will come and chastise you and give you pain in the immediate so that you'll have pleasure in the future. And then the adulterer is the one that has the smooth talk and gives you pleasure in the future and, or sorry, rather pleasure in the in present the, in the and present. pain in the, in the future. So it's again, this like inversion. Yeah. Um, yeah. And one of, and, and one of the go-to references for Augustine is, um, I can't remember the reference now, second Corinthians, I think, um, yeah, Second Corinthians. Uh, he, uh, Satan himself can appear as an angel of of light, right? Even even Satan can appear as an angel of light. This idea that, um, which he connects specifically more with um, um, theurgy and uh, the neo the Neoplatonists, um, who are who are trying to who are trying to put together 
a kind of post-Christian form of paganism. It's like these are these pagans who see sort of all the all the good, you know, the good aspects of Christianity, but definitely do not want to become Christian like all the lowbrow Christians and want their own sort of crypto-Christian uh, liturgy, trying exactly trying to have a kind of uh, uh, liturgy in 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 place of the truly divine liturgy. Uh, so that is, you know, that is the theme that that um, uh, that there is something tantalizing and there is something desiring to the senses um, about about uh, what is what will ultimately lead us away. Um, but that's why you had you right. That's why you need to be. It, it, um, attentive to your desires, uh, not in the way that the world would say that now, but exactly a watchfulness, right? A kind of vigilance about your desires and, and let them not carry, you know, not let them carry you away. Um, that you need to, I mean, that's why fasting is so key because what, what desire do we more regularly have than to satisfy our hunger, right? That's why we go, that's like going straight for the jugular in terms of desires. That's why we as Orthodox fast so much uh, or try to, right? Uh, to varying degrees of success. Because you got like, and doing other things instead of fasting ain't going to do it. You got to go straight for those desires. You have to go straight for them and you have to discipline them and you got to, and you have to kind of play with them and find the weak spots and, <laughs> right? And identify where, where, you, where you get tempted. Where do I get tempted? You know, this is where I'm weak. You know, you got to watch there. You got to put a watch there. Put a watch before my mouth, oh Lord, and a door of enclosure on my lips. You know, where where am I tempted? I'm tempted to you know have a loud mouth opinion over here, and I really got to watch that, um, right? So 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 dealing with dealing with uh, demons and and all the desires. It's all about it's all about desires and trying to incite the little desires in you that can pull you this way or that. Um, and so being disciplined, finding moments of discipline and fasting, um, and, and doing good works, that's all a part of the, that's all a part of the training regime of, of, you know, dealing with these things more and more successfully. So what, you encountered the Orthodox church and if you had to summarize, what would be the, the reasons why you decided to join it? I think I, I think it just was that it was the meeting of heaven and earth that we were talking about. That it, so it's kind of from both. It's kind of from both sides. It's like it it as as I began as I developed a picture of sort of what the church ought to be. Like it was just it was there, dynamically manifesting it. Like it just, it, was, it just clearly, and then, you know, the flip side is that it was also teaching me sort of what the church ought to be. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, there's this kind of circularity to it, but there's, it just, I just rec started to recognize it. You just, it's like, oh, this is it. This is, this is the church. This is the, the church just <laughs> opening its doors before me. It really was that. I mean, there are aspects to that, like, you know, like I said, the, the, the kind of significance of things, things being orderly and, and in their right place. Um, and, 
and of course, you know, sort of diving into the differences between um, the sort of the, the Eastern Orthodoxy, the sort of Byzantine, post-Byzantine um, um, group uh, groups of churches and, and Roman Catholicism, and and you know, feel just having on this ongoing sense that like I'm intuitively in communion with this church. What was a line from Dan? Uh, he said to me on more than one occasion, I just keep finding myself in communion with the Orthodox Church. That's why I'm Orthodox. And it's not like this, it's not like this, like, well, I need a church that believes this and this and this and this and this, and then pick that one. It's like a call to the, you know, I'm I'm out here searching for truth. And whatever I find that's true hap just happens to be all collected in the Orthodox Church, something like that. Mm -hmm. And when you joined or along the way, were there certain obstacles that you had to overcome? Oh yeah, I had been thinking about this. Yeah, the, there were a couple there were a couple of things. Uh one was that I had I had mentioned earlier in a kind of a passing comment that that my wife and I had had tried out the Orthodox Church for a couple of months. Well, I like it kind of took off for me but not for her. And so um, there was a lot of time. Uh, it just took, it just took a lot of time to sort that out uh, on, on the order of a few years. And that's, you know, there's more complexity there than, than we can properly get to. Um, but what can I say in some, um, she, there, there are a couple things that she had um, that were, that in in our disagreement about about this kind of being our a place for us that that she really contributed that were of, of really key importance one was was her instinctive insistence that we should all be worshiping together as a family uh which i thank god for um to yeah she she just needed Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to know what to uh, what what exactly to say, um, but yeah, it was it was it was a long process. It had to do with her own family dynamics. It also had to do with sort of my wrestling with my. I mean, the, the whole the, the delay was a was a godsend. It meant that I I when we did become Orthodox, it wasn't because of some misplaced sense that I needed to be a, a spiritual hero, which I am absolutely not. But you're in those early days, you're thinking like I'm gonna you know. I want to do this thing and everyone's preventing me and my wife is preventing me and she should just listen to me. And, and I'll tell you what, like down the road, when, when we were finally in a place where, where she was like, <clears throat> like ready to follow my lead. It's, it was, it's a kind of a dread. It's kind of a dreadful thing to have that kind of responsibility. Um, mm -hmm. It's wild and, and should not be, grasped at or or eagerly sought or like naively like i'm the man and and everyone should listen to me no like that 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 is that that responsibility is a dread responsibility to be responsible for the the spiritual well-being of of not just you but three other humans in my case this was before our our little hand was born um other other obstacles 
online orthodoxy was one. I mean, there's some real jerks out there and it's like, am I going to really be in communion with, with people who are big jerks? <laughs> That's a tough, it's like a tough pill to swallow. It's like, what's it, what does it mean to be in communion with people? And another one I, I did, I, I did have to, I did have to get on board with, um, with orthodox uh, orthodoxy's sort of stance on on the the variety of rainbow issues and i was i was certainly a kind of liberal leaning christian before then um i realized i i did come to the point where i realized like i effectively have to take this as an omnibus bill there's no way you you can't just go into into a tradition with a list of you can't convert into a church tradition like this with a list of things that, that you're going to immediately start to work at changing <laughs> in all naivete. And so, um, you know, I, I had to reckon with like, well, what is, what's, what's actually the, the, the belief here? What are, what's, what's, what's the, uh, what are the teachings here? What's actually going on? So those, there were, there were, those are some challenges, but, but mostly it was, it was a patience. And meanwhile, meanwhile, the, you know, my wife, again, to her credit, she saw that this was something that was not, this was not a flash in the pan for me. And she had, she prayed, she prayed her prayers. She prayed, she prayed that God might show her what, what was going on. What, and, and that, that, that he might change her heart to see what, why this was such a big deal for me. And so by and by, uh, by and by we had a, a couple of city moves that were just kind of the break that that it needed uh, to to have the opportunity to start. Mm. Well, I like what you say about um, waiting for the right time. It reminds me of like in the garden with the fruit of the tree. Yes. It wasn't yeah. the fruit was bad. It's just that the timing was off. And then it me. also makes me think there's a strange. I needed to change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's um, that strange sort of coincidence or like parallel in um, the story of Joseph as well, where um, initially he's in Egypt. And there's Potiphar's wife who presents herself to him as something desirable. And it, you know, harkens to the imagery of the tree. And then uh, he <laughs> says no and has all these consequences. But then later on in the story, um, he marries uh, Potiphar's wife, which is just oh, such, yeah, a, yeah. It's such an interesting little connection there. But um, along those lines uh, of like contentment, taking your time, et cetera. Uh, would you have any advice for people that are interested in the Orthodox church that are currently exploring it? Uh, maybe they've not been to a parish, maybe they have, but they're not officially Orthodox at this point. Yeah. You know, um, to, to try it out and to, to go more than once, um, but to give yourself the time and space that you need, it can be a, such a big adjustment. <clears throat> and especially if you come from Western traditions, like it's so wildly different that you're, that you, that you may, you may be like, I like the idea of there being this continuous tradition all the way back. And yet like, does it have to look like this? Like, is this necessary? Cause it, you know, there's, it's, it's particular, uh, but that, but that's it. Um, the, the particularity is where, where Christ is found. Um, and so not, you know, 
to, to brace yourself to see some real humanity, right? To see some fallibility, to see, to see people who, uh, you know, might not sing in tune all the time that there might be awkward moments in the liturgy. Um, but to, to just try to give yourself the time to see because it's, it's there. Um, but you, but you might find that Christ looks way more human than you had imagined. But the real trick is when you realize like, that's not, that's not a bug. That's a feature, right? Once you get onto the other side of the forest, you know, get through the forest for the trees and, and, and onto the other side and see like just how wondrous it is that that there's this family that's what it is right fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters all in christ gathering with all their foibles and all their uh and all their fr occasional frustrations with one another and occasional moments of great joy and 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 time together um that it's a family and you're welcome and you're welcome to join it um you know you you may see some of those foibles a little a little sooner than you had anticipated but it's 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 so remarkably beautiful um yeah well um it's been a real pleasure speaking with you deacon gregory i wish we had a little bit more time maybe we'll have you on in the future uh talk some more about demonology or other topics and happy um, time for anyone watching or listening, I definitely encourage you to check out the Men Among Demons podcast. And did you also say that you have a book that's uh, published? Yeah, right? yeah, I yeah I published my dissertation, "Fallen Angels in the Theology of Saint Augustine." It's it's a touch expensive. It came out with Oxford University Press. Those university presses they always gouge you. So get ready for the sticker shock. But I'm happy for the support if you if you want to give it uh, or get it from your library. What do I care? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll put a link to the podcast and the book in the uh, video description. And again, uh, thank you so much, Deacon Gregory. Thanks for having me, Max. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Take care. Everyone, thanks for checking out that episode of the Orthodox Christian Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it with one friend or family member. Also, there is a link to a Google form in the video description. If you have a question about Orthodox Christianity, you can submit it there. Also, there is a link to the Men Among Demons podcast, which I would encourage everyone to check out, as well as Dr. Gregory Weeb's book, or Deacon Gregory Weeb, either or. In any case, in the meantime, I hope that you have a peaceful week. Take care.